Good morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. Shortly after my wife and I were married, we invited my parents to come and stay the weekend with us. And that first evening that they were there, we sat down at the dinner table and my wife had prepared this great meal. And so as the uh, plates began to get passed and the meat came, I'm all in. And the potatoes came, I'm all in. And then the vegetables came. And I did what I usually do when past vegetables. I pass them along because I care about my family. <laughs> and I know that they need their greens. And so the loving husband that I am, I pass those on. And as I'm passing these on that evening, my mom looks at me and she says, eat your vegetables. <laughs> and I just had this sinking feeling like I'd been caught. So I pulled the... The veggies back to myself and my shoulders slumped, but then I had this revelation. This is my house. <laughs> and so I said no <laughs> to my mother. I'm not saying it was right, I'm just telling you what happened. <laughs> I said no, you eat these vegetables. This is my house because all growing up my mom had said, when you get your own house, you can make the rules. Now was my time. <laughs> and what happened was it opened up the floodgates because I just started, I, and I will drink out of this milk carton straight from the fridge and put it right back. And I will sit as close to the TV as I want to sit. And later on, maybe I'll run with scissors. I don't know. It's my house. I make the rules, right? What a funny way to express my independence in my house by doing things that aren't healthy for me, right? But we love our independence. We love this idea of being an individual, of having independence. We as a nation have a whole day set aside to celebrate our independence. And when someone tells us something to do, we bristle sometimes. When someone says, oh, you need to follow this rule, you need to do this thing, you need to vote this way, you need to eat your vegetables, something rises up in us, this attitude of, don't you tell me what to do. This past week, I came home from work, and my daughter was sitting on the couch, and I was told that she'd been sitting on the couch since she got home from school, so I sat next to her, and we talked for a few minutes, and then I said, you know what, it's probably time that you did your homework and your chores. And she looked at me, and she said, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but somewhat in all seriousness, don't you tell me how to live my life. <laughs> and the first thing I could think of was that Bill Cosby quote where he says, I brought you into this world and I will take you out. <laughs> and I'll make another one look just like you. <laughs> right? This, this kind of like, hmm. But she was expressing this independence because there's something in all of us, this attitude of don't you tell me how to live my life. I know what I'm doing. I'll do my own thing. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. We're going to see it in the life of Saul. We're continuing on in our series, Choices, and we're talking about decisions that shape the direction of our lives, and we're looking at that amazing narrative from First and Second Samuel. And so in the past few weeks, Susan and Steve have introduced us to Saul, or perhaps reintroduced us to Saul. And last week, Steve had a great message about anger, about how Saul made some good choices. Twice he chose not to get angry when he could have, maybe even when he should have. But one time when the Spirit of God came upon him, he became angry, and he mobilized his nation to stand up for the oppressed, and that was good. 
And so how do we do righteous anger well? How do we know when to get angry and when not to get angry? And if you wrestle with that, that would be a great message for you to listen to. Or maybe you know somebody that wrestles with that. I don't know if I'd even make that suggestion to them. But great message about anger. Well, we're going to look at the life of Saul, three different snapshots this morning. And as Saul made some right choices that we saw last week, as Saul progresses in his life, he is almost always on the wrong side of right. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you want to grab one out of the pew there, we're going to be looking at page 453. Now, here's a little bit of the background of the story. The Israelites and Saul were at war with the Philistines, which is the story of Saul's life. And the Philistines were a large army. Verse 5 tells us this, they had 3,000 chariots, they had 6,000 charioteers, and there were as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. And so the Israelites were nervous and they were scared. And so we're going to pick this story up kind of halfway through verse 7. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel. Another little bit of the backstory is Samuel had told him to wait there. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel says this, go to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. Go to this place. We're going to do the offerings, but wait seven days. When I show up, I'll tell you what it is that God is going to have us do. So Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Burnt offerings were a sign of total surrender to God, which is rather ironic because in Saul's life we see anything but that, it seems like. And the peace offerings were this thanksgiving to God. So Saul in his haste, offers the burnt offerings. Verse 10, just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. It's not always the way. You step out of line, you do something wrong, and then the person that you're accountable to shows up right then. Saul went out to meet him, to welcome him. Samuel shows up on the seventh day, just later than Saul had expected. Saul waited six and three-quarter days. That's crazy. I mean, that's like, that's like a quarterback throwing a pass, and you catch it, and you're running, and you're going to score a touchdown, and you're at the one-yard line, and you drop the ball. <laughs> right? I mean, who does that? <laughs> who goes that whole distance and then just drops the ball? That's, that's Saul in this story. He waits that long, and then he drops the ball. Saul tells Samuel, he has these excuses, because Samuel's like, what have you done? What have you done? Saul replied, I saw, I saw my men scattering from me, and you, you didn't arrive when you said you would, and, and the Philistines are there, and they're ready to attack us. Samuel says in verse 13, how foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. And maybe you read that and you're like, Samuel, slow down. You're overreacting a little bit. But you know, it's kind of a big deal. And it wasn't just that Saul was performing the priestly duty. That wasn't so much the big deal. It was more of an issue of obedience, of priorities, of trust, 
Saul had been given this command to go and to wait. And in his mind, he had all of these excuses why he couldn't do that. You just picture him like, I'm I'm trying to hold this whole thing together here. I'm trying to hold all these people together here and they're they're dispersing. So I'm going to do what I need to do. If I need to make these sacrifices, come on, let's hurry up. Let's get this God stuff over so we can kind of rally the troops around. It was really a question of who was in charge. Saul wasn't in charge. Even though Saul was trying to make a grab for both the civil and the sacred, to to be in charge of both of those things, he wasn't in charge. Samuel wasn't in charge. God was in charge. But Saul didn't see it that way. Saul did what he wanted to do in the moment because what Samuel had asked him wasn't working for him. Strike one. The next story is in chapter 14, and it's this amazing adventure story, and uh, I would encourage you, if you've never read it before, to read it, just not right now, later you need to read it, but I'll set it up for you. Uh, They're at war with the Philistines, go figure, and if you can picture, there's these two cliffs, and then this, this pass, this valley in between them, and on one side are Saul and his army, and on the other side are the Philistines, and nobody's gonna make a move, because to make a move in this situation puts you at an extreme disadvantage, To to just climb down the cliff and to start climbing up this other cliff means you're a sitting duck and people are going to hurl things at you and kill you. So both are sitting there. Now Saul's son, Jonathan, decides that he is tired of all the waiting. And so he takes his armor bearer and they climb down and his whole military genius plan is, guess what, we're gonna climb down, we're gonna call up and say, hey, we're coming at you. And they're gonna say, yep, come on up and we're gonna go and, and God's gonna give us victory. And you're like, okay, hope that works. It does. It works. As he's climbing up, he begins to fight, and the Philistines begin to panic, and they begin to scatter. Now Saul is still on this other cliff, but he can hear the commotion. And he knows that the Philistines, something's going on over there. And so if you look at verse 18 of chapter 14, Saul shouted to Ahiah, bring the ephod here. Now this was the high priest he was calling to. And he was saying, bring the ephod. Now, the ephod sounds like maybe it's this cool laser-sighted rocket device that he was going to pull up. But in all actuality, the ephod was this kind of outer robe with this breastplate that the high priest wore. And it had all of these uh, jewels on it. And, and if you look at it closely, it kind of could be like an early iPad. <laughs> maybe this is where we get the idea. I don't know. But uh, So not to be confused, it's an ephod, not an iPod, but within this, within this ephod is this special pocket, and you can read about it in Exodus 28, and within this pocket were two things, they were the Urim and the Thummim, and they were two similarly sized objects, whether they were stone or made of bone or something similar weight, and one was a yes and one was a no. And so the high priest, that was a way of finding out what God's answer to a question would be. He would put his hand in there and he would pull one out. And so Saul's saying this. He's saying, I want to inquire of God. We're going to ask God. So bring the ephod. Should we go over there? And the high priest was going to make this decision. But if you look at verse 19, while Saul was still talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, never mind, let's get going. He says, I, I want to come. I want to inquire of God. But then the noise got too loud, and he didn't have time for God anymore. 
And that's a sermon in and of itself, isn't it? The noise got loud. The confusion was too much. And so he was like, oh, we don't have time for this. We got to get going. We're going to go. I wanted to ask God, but uh, he who hesitates is lost. And so let's just move out on this thing. Waiting isn't working. I'm going to take care of this one myself. Strike two. The third story, chapter 15. And look at verse one. It says, one day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. Samuel's saying this, you didn't win the popular election. Your name was not on a ballot somewhere. You didn't come to this position on your own. God told me to anoint you, and so you need to listen to him. You haven't been doing very well, so listen to God when it comes to this next thing. You can't always be doing your own thing. And God tells him this, you're going to fight the Amalekites, and you need to wipe them out, everything, and don't keep anything for yourself. You see, if Saul were to go into this, and if he were to keep the plunder from this battle, it would be a way of rewarding himself. It would be a way of saying, look at the victory that I earned. Well, the victory was supposed to be the Lord, so God's saying, don't keep anything. But as we see in verse 9, Saul and his men spared Agag's life, which is a rather unfortunate name, but such is life, um, and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Saul goes into it, and he's like, well, I'm just going to keep this stuff because I like it. I know the command that God had given me, but that's not going to work for me right now. I'm going to keep this stuff. Samuel finally catches up to him. Saul greets him cheerfully. Verse 13, may the Lord bless you, he said. I've carried out the Lord's command. Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear, Samuel demanded. And then verse 15 is this classic like association, disassociation with Saul. We always associate with the good things, with the winners. That's why we say my team won. And we always disassociate with the losers. That's why we say they lost. We won, they lost. This is Saul in this verse. He says, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, cattle. But they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Which is interesting too, right? He doesn't say they are going to sacrifice them to God. He doesn't say they are going to sacrifice them to our God. He says they are going to sacrifice them to your God. And then he comes back in on the association part. He says, we have destroyed everything else. Verse 19, Samuel says, why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? What do we see with Saul? What do we see in his life? We see disobedience. We see lack of trust. We see the noise winning over the voice of God. And we see Saul thinking that he knows best and doing his own thing. I'll be honest, I sometimes see myself in Saul. And the question that I would have for Saul is maybe the question that I would ask us this morning. Was God the Lord and leader of Saul's life? 
Was God the Lord and leader of Saul's life? You see, in Saul, we see this strong sense of individualism, this strong sense of I'm going to do it myself, this strong sense of independence, which we love, and unless we're parenting, we don't love it then, but we love it most other times for ourselves. We see that in his life. You see, we believe that somewhere inherent to our pursuit of happiness is our ability to have unlimited choices. We believe that to have the ability to make the choices that we want to choose is the way that we are happy. And it starts in us in a very young age. My mom tells the story of how I made her cry on the first day of kindergarten. As she's walking me to school and she's holding my hand and she's saying this way, I am shaking her off and saying, I can do it myself. I can do it myself. I'm an independent, free-thinking five-year-old. That's who I am. But we like it when someone takes the bull by the horns, right? I mean, it sounds like such a brave thing, but in reality, it's kind of stupid. You wouldn't do that. And hand in hand with this independence, with this individualism that we see in Saul and oftentimes in ourselves, Saul was a pragmatist. And usually when we think of that word, we think that a pragmatist is, is a realist. It's a practical person. It's somebody with common sense. But here's the definition of pragmatism. Pragmatism is an approach that assesses the truth of meaning, of theories or beliefs, in terms of the success of their practical application. Which is saying that, that words like real and true are only functional in the current context A different way of saying it is this. What's true for me is what works for me. That there isn't some kind of all-encompassing truth written in stone that stands across all situations. Truth is something that is specific to myself and the current setting that I'm in. And so if it works for me in this setting, then it's true for me in this setting, which means truth comes from my circumstances and from somewhere inside of me. You see, it used to be in Christianity where people would say, hey, prove it to me, and I'll believe it. But we don't find people saying that much anymore. People say this, you know, Christianity just doesn't work for me. These, these sayings, these platitudes, the advice in this book, it's really not working in my life. Let me ask you this question. Does Christianity work for the believer? Well, yeah, in a sense. I mean, I think that is our expectation oftentimes that it should work for us. And yes, in the very long run, it works. But oftentimes in the short run, it doesn't. Obedience in the short run leads to difficulties. Jesus tells us that in John 16, 33. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. So if this is our attitude, then what happens when Christianity stops working for us? What happens when Jesus isn't really doing it for us anymore? What happens when we think that it's in our best interest to go against the things that he says? When we feel to, to pursue this relationship would be good for me, even though I know it's not right. 
to engage in this business opportunity, even though I have to confuse the truth a little bit, fudge the numbers a little bit, go behind someone's back just a little bit. But that's in my best interest. Or when something happens that is so bad that we're like, okay, it's just not working for me anymore. Where we've given maybe Jesus an opportunity to kind of fix things in our life, but when he didn't fix it, when it didn't work for us, well, then I will do it myself. I will take matters into my own hands. And we see this in Saul's life. Instead of waiting, instead of obeying, instead of listening, instead of trusting, he starts doing his own thing because those things aren't working for him anymore. And so he did it his way. When I was in college, my buddies took me downhill skiing, and mostly to laugh at me. And the first time I got on the lift and got to the top of the hill, uh, they started to teach me how to carve a little bit, how to turn, because if you can turn, you can stop. Turning wasn't working for me. You know what was working for me? If I pointed my skis straight down the hill, and I tucked and I went for it. That worked. And it was faster. And it was more exhilarating. And I met a lot of really nice people at the bottom of the hill at a high rate of speed (laughs) who did not want to be my friends. So, honest, the first time I got up there, I tried it, I kept falling, so I was like, well, I can do this. Pointed the skis, went straight down the hill, picking up speed. Now, at the bottom of the hill, they have this pesky little line of these people waiting to get on the ski lift. (laughs) There was no turning in my book. So I'm flying at these people and eventually they see me coming, but they're not moving very fast because they're stopped and they have skis and poles and they're trying to get out of the way. And I just, boom, plowed into them. It was like a yard sale. I mean, there were skis and poles and hats and gloves (laughs) everywhere, but I did it my way, right? Just my way really hurt. My way wasn't exactly good for me. You see, Jesus isn't just first of all of our priorities. Jesus needs to be first in all of our priorities. He doesn't just top the list. It's not just like we go, okay, well, there's Jesus, and then there's family, and then there's work, or work and family, depending on what you value, and recreation, and college football, and eating your veggies, whatever it is, wherever you put these things on your list. It's not like you just put Jesus at the top, which means then you have time that you set aside for Jesus, but then once that time's over, you can go to the next thing on your list, and that's this, and that, and the other. No, Jesus is first in all of those things. He is the leader. He is the Lord in all of those things. Saul had issues with trust and submission and obedience, but the question is, who was the leader of his life? Who was the ultimate Lord of his life? And so I would ask us again, is God the true leader of your life? And if not, who or what is controlling you? Because something is. Rebecca Pippert wrote this book called Out of the Salt Shaker, and she has this quote. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. She's saying this, that we literally live our lives out of control. Now, maybe that causes you to bristle and you think, no way, nobody tells me what to do. Then I would say independence is what controls you. 
And oftentimes, the things that we use to express our freedom are the things that end up enslaving us. And we've become too pragmatic in our discipleship. You see, the difference between a disciple and not a disciple oftentimes are words like if, when, after. I'll obey you, Lord, if you bring healing to this situation, to this person, to this family member. I'll follow you wholeheartedly when things settle down in my life. God, after this season, I'm your man. I'll do what you want me to do. If there are conditions to our obedience, then what follows those words is what is really controlling us. Tim Keller says this, God is the only thing that can can control you without destroying you. God is the only thing that can control you without destroying you. It's not popularity or possessions or people or safety or security or happiness or all of these other things that we let control our lives. Those things lead us to ruin. You see, we do not ask God into our lives to be our assistant. We do not ask God into our lives to be our secretary. We do not ask God into our lives to be a consultant. We ask him into our lives to be our Lord, and he's either Lord of all or nothing at all. And so where does this pragmatism lead? Where does this individualistic independence attitude leave? Where does that leave us? What does that do to our faith? Well, quite honestly, it makes it shallow. It makes it meaningless. It makes it ritual. It makes it just doing what maybe we grew up in the church, and so we're still just going to church because that's what we've always done, or maybe we do it because it's what our spouse wants us to do, but we don't believe in God as much as we believe in ourselves. And so how can it not make our faith ritual? How can it not just be going through the motions? We know what it's like to go through the motions, right? Listen to this song. We all know what to do when this song plays, right? Go ahead. Right? You know what to do. Absolutely. All right, how about this next song? One more. You know what to do with this song. Thank you. Come on, let me hear you clap. All right, that's good, that's good. I hope to be the first pastor to ever do the chicken dance on stage. I think I've accomplished that. But those songs don't make you good dancers. They just embarrass you at wedding receptions. That's what they do. That you're just going through the motions. I mean, you're happy that, that you know what it is that you're doing, but it doesn't really make you a dancer. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing that can happen in our faith. We can just get so used to it, we know what to do. And so when we come into church, we're just so used to, we sing a song, and then we take communion, and then we listen to a message, and then we're done. And there's not any kind of depth to it. It's just us going through the motions. It's just because that's what we're used to doing when that happens. For Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel says to Saul, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice. 
Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Submission is better than offering the fat of rams. You see, ritual can't overcome a rebellious attitude. Sacrifice does not cover up self-will. God says it's about the heart. And outward observances never trump inward commitments. Saul's kingdom got pulled from him because individualism, this independence, this I'll do it my own way, this pragmatism leads to separation. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. When God isn't the Lord of our lives, the noise wins. I wanna look at a few questions that we can ask ourselves and we're leaning into communion so maybe one of these will grab you as you sit quietly while we're waiting but here's the first one. Am I a pragmatist? Am I concerned about what works for me or am I walking in obedience to God and his word? Maybe a different way of saying it would be this. Am I willing to follow God when it doesn't seem realistic or reasonable? Too often we're concerned with what's reasonable over what's righteous. And reason oftentimes is our own reason and we wanna do things our way. How about this question? Is the noise in my life winning? God, I wanna listen to you, I wanna follow you, but there's just so many things going on around me that I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna walk in this direction. I'm just gonna choose this. Has my faith become ritual? Am I just going through the motions here? Or does it have meaning? And lastly, and maybe taking into account all of these things, do I have anything in my life that means more to me than God? What is that? What is controlling us? Jesus gives two illustrations in Matthew 13, and these are things that Saul was unable to do. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. This idea of nothing compares to that one thing. Who is Lord of your life? And have you submitted fully to him? Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these narratives, these stories. And God, this morning we confess our independence, our desire to do our own thing, our own way, our desire that oftentimes we think we know best how to live our lives. God, forgive us when the noise wins. God, as John said, we pray that you would become greater and greater and that we would become less and less. So again this morning, we submit ourselves to you. In your name, Jesus, amen.